Greetings, traveller. Come, sit beside me in the circle of the fire. Because you're here for another episode of the Solitary Pagan Podcast. Today, we're going to be covering the myth of Cavassia's blood. We're going to be talking about hearing your deities. And finally, we're going to be covering the rune of Kenaz, the torch. These are all really positive attributes for me, and I look forward to sharing what I think of them with you. So draw up a seat, have yourself a drink, and get yourself comfy. Let's begin. Now, there's a few things I want to mention. First of all, you may hear a bit more background noise than normal. Um, It's a glorious day here in the UK in spring, in March, so March, April even, wow. The days have really flown, haven't they? But either way, I'm sat outside in the back garden in the little area that I'm building for myself with lots of herbs and plants surrounding me just because I feel the need to be more grounded with nature and my surroundings. Um, Also, the fact it's sunny and, well, we don't get enough sun in the UK. But I also need to apologise for the absence that I took without warning. There's a variety of reasons. It includes the fact that I didn't feel that I was um, doing well enough, that I wanted to do better for you, and this is something I'm working on. Um, I've promised a few times that I'm going to start getting podcast notes done, and as of yet I haven't done it. And that's been kind of pulling me down. So, I've actually got done this episode properly, or how I feel properly, which is to actually write my podcast notes out first, rather than doing it on the fly, which is what I'd normally do. I also really want to thank Amanda for the email, because you know what, when I got that, that brought such a smile to my face. So if you're listening to this, I hope this episode really brings you joy, and really helps you on your path. And it was great hearing from you. I hope the weather's really well over in um, Minnesota. And thank you once again. So, what's going to happen in the future? I've already decided that, short of a miracle, I'm probably not going to get the first episode's um, podcast notes out. For the sole fact that I never actually wrote any notes. So instead I'm going to promise that from here on out, I'm going to have the notes up. And they're going to include any books I use including the ISBNs and the publishing, so that you too can enjoy the books that I'm using as a resource. That said, I think I've got all the rambling I need to get out, so I think we're ready to continue. start with the myth section of this. So make sure you're sitting comfortably, because this myth, well, there's a lot of betrayals in it, and it really shows how it's not just Odin that can be cunning, and that all the races can have their bad sides and their good sides. So sit yourself comfortably and let's continue. Are we seated comfortably? Then let us begin. Once upon a time there lived a man named Kvasir, who was so wise that no one could ask him a question to which he did not know the answer, and who was so eloquent that his words dripped from his lips like notes of music from a lute. For Cavassia was the first poet who ever lived, the first of those wise makers of songs whom the Norse folk named skalds. 
This Kvasir received his precious gifts wonderfully, for he was made by the gods and the Vanir, those two mighty races, to celebrate the peace which was evermore to be between them. Up and down the world Kvasir travelled, lending his wisdom to the use of men, his brothers, and wherever he went he brought smiles and joy and comfort. For with his wisdom he found the cause of all men's troubles, and with his songs he healed them. This is what the poets have been doing in the ages ever since. Folk declare that every skald has a drop of Kvasir's blood in him. This is the tale which is told to show how it happened that Kvasir's blessed skill has never been lost to the world. There were two wicked dwarves named Philar and Galar, who envied Kvasir his power over the hearts of men, and so who plotted to destroy him. So one day they invited him to dine, and while he was there they begged him, Come, come aside with us. We have a secret question to ask which only you can answer. Kvasir never refused to turn his wisdom to another's help, so nothing suspecting he went with them to hear their trouble. I mean, who knows, it could have been a private matter that they didn't want their guests overhearing, you know? That wasn't to be the case. Thereupon, this sly pair of wicked dwarves led him into a lonely corner. Treacherously, they slew Kvasir, and because their cunning taught them that his blood must be precious, they saved it in three huge kettles, and mixing it with honey, made thereof a magic drink. Truly, a magic drink it was, for whoever tasted of Kvasir's blood was straightway filled with Kvasir's spirit, so that his heart taught wisdom, and his lips uttered the sweetest poetry. Thus the wicked dwarves became possessed of a wonderful treasure. When the gods missed the silver voice of Kvasir echoing up from the world below, they were alarmed, for Kvasir was very dear to them. They inquired what had become of him, and finally the wily dwarves answered that the good poet had been drowned in his own wisdom. But Father Odin, who had tasted another wise draught from Mimir's well, knew that this was not the truth, and kept his watchful eye upon the dark doings of Philar and Galar. Not long after this, the dwarves committed another wicked deed. They invited the giant Jilling to row out to sea with them, and when they were a long distance from shore, the wicked fellows upset the boat and drowned the giant, who could not swim. They rowed back to land and told the giant's wife how the accident had happened. Then there were giant shrieks and howls enough to deafen all the world. For the poor giantess was heartbroken, and her grief was a giant grief. Her sobs annoyed the cruel-hearted dwarves, so Philar, pretending to sympathise, offered to take her where she could look upon the spot where her dear husband had last been seen. As she passed through the gateway, the other dwarf, to whom his brother had made a sign, let a huge millstone fall upon her head. That was the ending of her, poor thing, and of her sorrow, which had so disturbed the little people, crooked in heart as in body. But punishment was in store for them. Suttung, the huge son of Gilling, learned the story of his parents' death, and presently, in a dreadful rage, he came roaring to the home of the dwarves. He seized one of them in each big fist, and wading far out to sea, set the wretched little fellows on a rock, which at high tide would be covered with water. Stay there, he cried, and drown as my father drowned. The dwarves screamed thereat for mercy so loudly that he had to listen before he went away. Only let us off, Satung, they begged, and you shall have the precious mead made from Kvasir's blood. 
Now Sutung was very anxious to own this same mead, so at last he agreed to the bargain. He carried them back to land, and they gave him the kettles in which they had mixed the magic fluid. Sutung took them away to his cave in the mountains, and gave them in charge of his fair daughter Gunlod. Gunlod, all day and all night she watched by the precious kettles, to see that no one came to steal or taste of the mead, for Sutung thought of it as his greatest treasure, no wonder. Father Odin had seen all these deeds from his seat above the heavens, and his eye had followed longingly the passage of the wondrous mead, for Odin longed to have a draught of it. Odin had wisdom. He had drained that draught from the bottom of Mimir's mystic fountain, but he lacked the skill of speech which comes with drinking Kvasir's blood. He wanted the mead for himself and his children in Asgard, and it seemed a shame that this precious treasure should be wasted upon the wicked giants who were their enemies. So he resolved to try if it might not be won in some sly way. One day, he put on his favourite disguise as a wandering old man, and set out for giant land where Sutung dwelt. By and by he came to a field where the nine workmen were cutting hay. Now these were servants of Baugi, the brother of Sutung, and this Odin knew. He walked up to the men and watched them working for a little while. Ho! he exclaimed at last. Your sides are dull. Shall I wet them for you? The men were glad enough to accept his offer, so Odin took a whetstone from his pocket and sharpened all the sides most wonderfully. Then the men wanted to buy the stone. Each man would have it for his own, and they fell to quarrelling over it. To make matters more exciting, Odin tossed the whetstone into their midst, saying, Let him have it who catches it. Then, indeed, there was trouble. The men fought with one another for the stone, slashing right and left with their sharp sides until everyone was killed. Odin hastened away and went up to the house where Baugi lived. Presently, home came Baugi, complaining loudly and bitterly because his quarrelsome servants had killed one another, so there was not one left to do his work. What am I going to do? he cried. Here it is, mowing time, and I have not a single man to help me in the field. Then Odin spoke up. I will help you, he said. I am a stout fellow, and I can do the work of nine men if I am paid the price I ask. What is the price, you ask? queried Baugi eagerly, for he saw that this stranger was a mighty man, and thought perhaps he could do as he boasted. I ask that you get me a drink of Sutung's mead, Odin answered. Then Baugi eyed him sharply. You are one of the gods, or you would not know about the precious mead. Therefore, I know that you can do my work, the work of nine men. I cannot give you my mead, either mead. It is my brother's, and he is very jealous of it, for he wishes it all himself. But if you will work for me all the summer, when winter comes, I will go with you to Sutung's home, and try what I can to get a draft for you. So they made the bargain, and all summer, Father Odin worked in the fields of Baugi, doing the work of nine men. When the winter came, he demanded his pay. So they set out for Sutung's home, which was a cave deep down in the mountains, where it seems not hard to hide one's treasures. First, Baugi went to his brother and told him of the agreement between him and the stranger, begging for a gift of the magic mead wherein to pay the stout labourer, who had won the work of night. But Sutung refused to spare even a taste of the precious liquor. This labourer is one of yours is one of the gods, our enemies, he said. Indeed, I will not give him the precious mead. What were you thinking of, of brother? 
Then he talked to Balgi, till the giant was ready to forget his promise to Odin, and to only desire the death of the stranger who had come forward to help him. Balgi returned to Odin with the news that the mead was not to be had with Suttung's consent. Then we must get it without his consent, declared Odin. We must use our wits to steal it from under his nose. You must help me, Balgi, for you have promised. Balgi agreed to this, but his heart he meant to entrap Odin to his death. Odin now took from his pocket an auger, such as one uses to bore holes. Look now, he said, you shall bore a hole into the roof of Suttung's cave, and when the hole is large enough, I will crawl through and get the mead. Very well, nodded Balgi. Then he began to bore into the mountain with all his might and main. At last he cried, There, it is done. The mountain is pierced through. But when Odin blew into the hole to see where, whether it did indeed go through into the cave, the dust made by the auger flew into his face. Thus he knew that Balgi was deceiving him, and therefore he was on his guard, which was fortunate. Try again, said Odin sternly. Pour a little deeper, friend Balgi. So Balgi went to the work once more, and this time when he said the hole was finished, Odin found that his word was true, for the dust blew through the hole and disappeared in the cave. Now Odin was ready to try the plan which had, he had been forming. Odin's wisdom taught him many tricks, and among them he knew the secret of changing his form into that of any creature he chose. He turned himself into a worm, a long, slender, wiggly worm just small enough to be able to enter the hole that Balgi had pierced. In a moment he had thrust his head into the opening and was wiggling out of sight before Balgi had even guessed what he meant to do. Balgi jumped forward and made a stab at him with the pointed auger but it was no use. The worm's striped tail quivered in out of sight and Balgi's wicked attempt was spoiled. When Odin had crept through the hole he found himself in a dark, damp cavern, where at first he could see nothing. He changed himself back into his own noble form and then he began to hunt about for the kettles of magic mead. Presently, he came to a little chamber, carefully hidden in a secret corner of this secret grotto. A chamber, locked and barred and bolted on the inside, so that no one could enter by this door. Sutton had never thought of such a thing as that a stranger might enter by a hole in the roof. At the back of this tiny room stood three kettles upon the floor and besides them, with her head resting on her elbow, sat a beautiful maiden sound asleep. It was Gunnod, Suttung's daughter, the guardian of the mead. Odin stepped up to her very softly, and bending over, kissed her gently upon the forehead. Gunnod awoke with a start, and at first she was horrified to find a stranger in the cave where it seemed impossible that a stranger could enter. But when she saw the beauty of Odin's face, and the kind look of his eyes, she was no longer afraid but glad that he had come, for poor Gunnlod often grew lonesome in this gloomy cellar home where Suttung kept her prisoner day and night to watch over the free kettles. Dear maiden, said Odin, I have come a long distance to you to see you. Will you not bid me stay a little while? Gunnlod, Gunnlod looked at him kindly. Who are you, and whence do you come so far to see me? she asked. I am Odin from Asgard. The way is long and I am thirsty. Shall I not taste the liquor which you have there? Gunnlod hesitated. My father bade me never let soul taste of the mead, she said. I am sorry for you, however, poor fellow. You look very tired and thirsty. You may have one little sip. 
Then Odin kissed her and thanked her, and tarried there with such pleasant words for the maiden that before he was ready to go, she granted him what he asked. Three draughts, only three draughts of the mead. Now Odin took up the first kettle to drink, and with one draught he drained the whole. He did the same by the next and the next, till, before she knew it, Gunnlod found herself guarding three empty kettles. Odin had gained what he came for, and it was time for him to be gone before Suttung co should come to seek him in the cave. He kissed fair Gunnlod once again, with a sigh to think he must treat her so unfairly. Then he changed himself into an eagle, and away he flew to carry the precious mead home to Asgard. Meanwhile, Balgi had told the giant Suttung how Odin the Worm had pierced through into his treasure cave, and when Suttung, who was watching, saw the great eagle fly forth, he guessed who this eagle must be. Suttung also put on an eagle's plumage, and a wonderful chase began. Whirr! Whirr! The two enormous birds winged their way towards Asgard, Suttung close upon the other's flight. Over the mountains they flew, and the world was darkened as if by passage of heavy storm clouds, while the trees, blown by the breeze from their wings, swayed and bent almost to the ground. It was a close way, race, but Odin was the swift of the two. And at last he had the mead safe in Asgard, where the gods were waiting with huge dish dishes to receive it from his mouth. Suttung was so close upon him, however, that he jostled Odin, even as he was filling the last dish, for some of the mead was spilled about in every direction over the world. Men rushed from far and near to taste of these wasted drops of Kvasir's blood, and many had just enough to make them dizzy, but not enough to make them wise. These folks are the poor poets, the makers of bad verses, whom one finds to this day satisfied with their meagre stolen portion, scattered drops of the sacred draught. The mead that Odin had captured he gave to the gods, a wondrous gift, and they in turn cherished it as their most precious treasure. It was given into the special charge of old Draghi, the white beard, because his taste of the magic mead had made him wise and eloquent above all others. He was the sweetest singer of all the Aesir, and his speech was poetry. Sometimes Bragi gave a draught of Kvasir's blood to some favoured mortal, and he also became a great poet. He did not do this often. Only once or twice in the memory of an old man, for the precious mead was made, must be made to last a long, long time, until the world be ready to drop to pieces, because this world, without its poets, would be too dreadful a place to imagine. So, as ever, there is a few notes I wish to give about the um, story we've just shared. Um, the biggest one, for me, is the fact that this is one of the first stories that mentions Odin as a shapeshifter. And it's this that I feel has given rise to the idea that Odin, and it's an idea I subscribe to, Odin and Loki are really two halves of the same whole. For me, you can't really have Odin without Loki. For Loki represents the wild side, the chaotic side, the side of Odin that is unchanneled. And if you think about it, you don't get a truly wild fire without a wind. And Odin's rune answers is often linked with the wind, but when put in reverse, that same rune is linked with Loki. Um, it's also a story that is partially depicted, at least, in um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Though, without the amazing eagle flight chase scene, and also in Valhalla, it's more closely tied with the Ragnarok saga. It's um, Odin trying to find ways outside of Ragnarok. It's also interesting how 
this book only lightly touches upon the fact that Auden and Gunlod spent um, a more intimate relationship with each other. And um, I do like that, though I have to say I do find it a little bit creepy that Auden comes across this maiden, wakes her up with a kiss, tarries with her, and they do indeed, as you'll see in next week's episode where we introduce Bragi, they do indeed spend time together and that time together includes significantly less clothing. I find it interesting how this um, book actually tarries across that. I wanted to say that depending on what version of the sagas you're listening to, you will get differing ideas. But I love the fact that this is tying into not just life on Asgard, but also how they're bringing in how events up in Asgard always affected Midgard, the middle ground. And that's something I love. I also love how in this one, this is the first one I've seen, where they indicate the difference between the beliefs of the um, Aesir and Vanir that the giants were wicked, and actually the first part of the story made you almost feel a bit sorry for the giants that were involved here. And to me, even the second part, because ultimately this was just Odin being greedy again, and um, to me Odin's greed... For me personally, it's ultimately what's going to bring the downfall of the gods about. You may disagree with me, but my personal belief is that it's Odin's greed more than anything else that causes the gods and causes the Ragnarok. Odin desires so many things, he desires so much wisdom, that ultimately his desire for wisdom and the fact that he doesn't try and temper it causes all the problems they face in later times. And that's why I say Odin is just as cunning as Loki, if not more so. But that's for another episode. So, for this next section, I want to talk about the ways that I've heard deities, and ways the deities can talk to you. And um, this is partly why I wanted to record this episode outside, if I'm honest with you. Because I often feel a calling to outside around this time. And it's very, very telling to me that this happens. Same time every year, the sun starts coming out, the days get longer and warmer. And I'm drawn to the outside. And it's quite interesting to me. However, there's a few other ways that the gods can talk to you and... The biggest thing that I want to share first is that one of the easiest ways they'll talk to you is through what we tend to call gut instinct. It's also known as intuition. It's why, for me, it's always been important that I teach myself to listen to that intuition because I'm I'm very bad at listening to my intuition. I tend to try my best to ignore it if it comes through at times where I'm like, well, actually, I didn't really want to listen to you right now. I don't want to deal with you right now. So, for me, that's still a bit of a work in progress to remind myself that, yeah, it's it's kind of important to listen to the intuition side of things. It tends to tell you useful information before you make a massive fool of yourself. But, another personal story. So, this is a bit of unique personal practice side of things. The three deities I work with tend to talk to me in very differing ways. 
Loki, I know, will tend to reach out to me either through pranks or through tarot. And there's a bit of a funny story about that. In that there was one point when I was trying to work out if I should do a thing. There was something that was really weighing heavy on me and I was feeling trapped and stagnant and like I couldn't really flow. Um, next thing I know, so I have three different tarot decks. And I hadn't mixed them. I'd done nothing of the sort. But well, I um, I may have drawn three cards that were all the death cards in each of the three decks. From one from each three deck and I was like I don't know how I've done this but okay it's obviously a sign and that was around the point just afterwards because I got a feeling and this is what I mean when I say intuition I got a feeling that was definitely from Loki um, Loki will also tend to hide things Odin tends to speak through tarot but he will also speak very strongly through a desire for something so the most recent one I've got for that is that um, I've been hit with a desire to get two staves, two walking staves. He wants me to get one of ash that is a proper walking stave that's um, chest height. He wants it with a um, thumb knock in it and he wants it with a spike on the end. He's very particular like this so he wants a proper walking spike on the end. And that one I have this feeling that he always wants festooned with flowers he wants me to keep a crystal on it um i'm getting the feeling of opalite which is one of the crystals that Auden has clearly claimed for his own on my well on his shrine and then finally fraser fraser tends to speak to me primarily through gut instinct i tend to feel v very firmly the warm feelings when she's happy with me I tend to feel very strongly drawn to things that she wants. So again, I get this sense of desire. Um, and I get the feeling it's Fraser who is um, drawing me outside. And is drawing me to start this little garden. So something I want to add into my little pot garden, which is where we're sat recording at the minute, down at the bottom patio, is I want to try and either make a little clay model of um, a cat, or I want to draw a and paint a cat on it one of the many stones that this garden seems to grow so that's some of the ways that the gods tend well my deities tend to talk to me but there's quite a few the strongest I've already said is very much intuition they can also leave signs and they may also reach out to you through dreams um, though I've not done anything about interpreting dreams or through candles um, another story I can give you about how Odin reached out to me I was doing the tarot draw for the start of the year because that's kind of something that's a little bit important to me, you know. I kind of wanted to see what the year could have. And all of a sudden, so I was working at what I consider my practical magic altar. Versus the deity shrine I have set up. But all of a sudden, I glanced at the male candle. I don't know what made me glance at it, but I glanced up at the male candle. Sorry, there's a kitty cat just walking along the fence line. I'm hoping that Charlie don't clock it, and I'm hoping it don't come down, because if it does come down, I might have problems. It's just giving me the most penetrating stare, so I think Fraser's sort of watching over me as usual. Yep, there it is. It's um, gone and sat itself on the fence, where it can observe me. That's something that happens. That was one of the first times I had a Fraser. 
a black cat sitting, observing me through the upstairs window, practically staring at me. But we're going off topic. I was looking, I glanced up because I noticed that the male deity candle on the Practical Magic Altar was flickering. And I mean really flickering and I glanced to the female deity candle and that was perfectly still so I could rule out that there was a sudden wind gust or anything like that. And that candle kept jumping and dancing and flickering until such point as I actually did a room pull and interpreted the runes. And I always say, I always had that feeling that that was Odin yelling at me to do that. And Odin, when he really wants your attention, he's not afraid to make it blatantly obvious as I know way too well from the fact that I tried to ignore him for way too long. I'm not going to try that one again, trust me. It didn't work out for me, put it that way. But... They may also give you signs through the weather, for example. So, things always seem to get a little bit stormy if Odin isn't happy with me, or if I've accidentally displeasured Thor, though I don't tend to work with Thor. The funniest thing that used to happen, and this may just be coincidence, but I don't think it was somehow, is during the winter that just passed, um, I could typically say something like, Loki's balls, it feels like snow. And next thing I know, it starts snowing. Now, whether that was Loki just playing pranks with the weather, I don't know and I don't want to know, but it did chuck on with. They could also show up as animals, and the animals they show up as are going to depend on where you're from. So, in the UK, the animals I tend to associate with my deities are as follows. Fraser is always the cat. That's sort of unanimous. I haven't picked up any other animals that, she's, that they have claimed, but... Definitely the cat. Odin is the jackdaw, the crow, and the raven. He, They're the primary ones for Odin. But I also notice when Odin's around, Charlie, my dog, tends to be a bit closer as well, as if Charlie's being claimed as a representation of one of Odin's hands. Loki, for me, it's definitely the magpie. It's also foxes, though foxes he does share with someone else, I'm aware. And finally it's the squirrel, and the reason for the squirrel is the um, squirrel that climbs the world tree and causes mischief. So, they're my deity signs, but yours may differ varying on where you're from. So that's something to be aware of. Things that tell me that the deities are happy with me is when I have one of their animals following me from place to place. Um, I've also had a robin start to hang out with me, but... I've decided that may just be the robin just hanging out. You know, that that's not something I'm always surprised at. But yes, there's a variety of the ways the deities speak to you. I've covered the ones that I've heard of, and I've covered the ones that I've experienced. There's probably going to be more, and I'd love if I could hear some of your experiences. Please remember that I'm very new on this path myself, and I'm just sharing this. In case it helps other people that are in the same boat, that are still learning, that are still finding their own path. Because ultimately for me, the best use of wisdom is wisdom shared. That's where me and Odin probably don't quite agree. I don't agree with hoarding wisdom. I enjoy sharing wisdom. And there's nothing wrong with that. That said, I think it's time that we move on to the next section, which is talking about Kenaz.
So, today we're talking about Kinaz, and for me, Lycansos is one of my favourite runes, and it has a lot of meanings for me. So, Kinaz is also known as the Torch. It's also known as the Torch of Creativity, and it's linked very strongly with the ideas of creativity. And for me, when I pull it up from the runes, when I get that in a rune cast, for me, it gives me the following messages very strongly. If it's face up, it always says to me, depending on the question I've asked, that either the wellspring of creativity is high, this is a good time to follow creative ideas, you need to listen to your creative urges, you need to do something creative, you need to stop doing the logical things, you need to just explore, express yourself. This podcast came about because I was querying whether I should do it or not, and the first rune I drew was um, Kina's. So that's what sort of gave me this idea and what gave me almost that impetus to do this podcast. The fact that I asked the runes a question and the runes, well, they answered very strongly that yes, in effect, it was time to put the creative energies into this. Um, It also can indicate, and as I say, this is very dependent on the question asked. So it can also tie into the idea of... um, Sometimes you need to find the creative solution to the problem. You're looking at the problem from too much of a logical black and white mindset or from finding the simple solution when realistically it may be the creative solution you need to find. So again, that's another way that Kinaz can express itself. It's telling you when you draw it that you're looking at things from too much of a inside-the-box mindset and you need to step outside the box you need to embrace a bit more chaos and think about what kinaz is as the torch torches have a fire on them torches are a controlled fire so it's almost saying to me you need more controlled chaos in your life which sounds a bit of a strange thing to say but it kind of makes sense it's a hard thing to explain for me when kinaz is shown reversed or when i pull it reversed it very firmly says that you're getting stagnant, you're getting yourself stuck in this rut, you're getting stuck in your ways, and you may need to change that a little bit. So it can also be telling you, hey, you're getting too stuck on this one idea, this one idea isn't the right idea, this idea may even be draining your creative energies. You may need to move away from this, or it may not be the right time to face this, do this creative idea yet. Give it time, let it come to fruition, let it bear fruits. Think of it again a bit like a torch. If the torch isn't well dipped in the requirements to make a torch, it's not going to do anything. What I, and it's not going to last, you know. What I love the most about Kinaz is its shape. So for me, its shape has two meanings. If you turn it on its side, it reminds me of a fire pit. You can see how it could contain flames within it. On its normal way of showing, however, it also reminds me of either channeling energy into a point, so it's focusing something down into a point, or it's directing energy from that point out in a massive explosion. The energy can arc out, and you don't know what it's going to do, and it's really exciting, you know? So that's sort of what Kinaz says to me whenever I see it in a room poll. When referencing the book that I tend to reference the most, a little bit of runes, an introduction to Norse divination by Cassandra Easton, 
it also reminds us that Kinaz is the ruin of listening to our inner voice, our gut instinct. Um, and also listening to your child self. Now this is something I haven't covered very often. But I firmly believe that sometimes the answer isn't in listening to your adult logical brain, but listening to your child. Um, and it also gives the challenges that, for the blank side up, there could be an unwelcome intrusion. You're ignoring your intuition and you need to stop that. You're, Or even you're not looking after yourself. You're not putting yourself first. And you need to put yourself first and above others. Um, it is... A fire rune is considered one of the fire runes and it represents the fire that le- that was lit in the great halls as well as more humble abodes. It's tied strongly to an inner flame that all of us possess and that inner flame is what guides our inspiration. All fire runes, no matter where they come from, talk of a kindling of love and passion for life and for exp- the expression of what makes us unique. Um, it also s- indicates that when you are seeing it in the reading it sometimes says that if you're trying to decide between two things a third unconsidered way will appear and it acts to remind you to listen to that inner voice and your intuition it's the greatest guide to what others are saying and it tells you what you really really want and feel it also can sometimes indicate that love may be just around the corner who knows because fire runes are also very strongly linked to lust and passion and romantic relationships. It, so Kinaz being the first fire rune tends to speak very strongly of the kindling of relationships. That said, that's all I want to say on the matter of Kinaz. And I hope this has proven intuitive and in, introductory. An informative, not introductionary. Sorry, I'm apparently struggling with my words today. And I trust that this has helped you. It's given you a bit of a guidance. I'm giving my intuition and the book intuition because I know that rune reading isn't something that is tend to be practised. And it's certainly not something that is taught as much as, say, for example, tarot. And I remember when I was first starting, I was constantly querying, am I doing this right, am I doing this wrong? And just like with tarot, hearing people who are experienced or who have some practice reading runes, it can help you gain an idea of what the cards mean in tarot. I'm hoping that by me giving my personal perspectives as well as book perspectives and giving you these resources, it's going to help you develop your own intuition and find the right meaning for you. I do want to take this time, however, to thank each and every one of you for listening to this episode. I trust this has given you new perspectives and I trust that it's been informative. I also trust that the background noise hasn't been too great because this is my first time recording this an episode outside in the back garden and depending on if I get negative feedback, I'm hoping to continue doing this as the spring turns into summer and hopefully the weather gets better. Though being in the UK, we never quite know whether it is or not. I'm hoping to have got the podcast show notes up by the time this episode is live. And from here on out, as I've already mentioned, I'm going to try and keep doing the podcast notes before I record the episodes. So next week, we'll be doing Kring Bragi. And we're almost at the end of the first day of the Elder Futhark. 
so that's kind of exciting as well we're almost at one closure and it's going to allow me to share some ideas and some thoughts that I've read and thought and contemplated myself but as ever if you are listening to this on Apple if you can please leave me a review on Apple because it helps more people find this podcast especially if you find it useful likewise if you ever want to reach out to me and know that I'm going to read it if you send me an email at deviateddroid at gmail.com or simply leave me a voice message on here on Anchor even then that would be great as ever I couldn't do this without all you you're truly amazing and I'll be hoping to get the show notes up on the website thank you once again for listening and until next time traveller may your journeys across the world and through the realms of knowledge and law and history prove informative I'm always looking to develop this podcast and make it better and I'm hoping that you're with me for this journey but until we meet again traveller safe journeys farewell